Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning very mindful of our weakness, very mindful of our inability to carry out in our own strength the desire of our hearts, the desire that you have put there yourself, the desire, Father, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we pray now that you would empower us together by your spirit so that this would not just be a mere exercise in exchanging information, but rather, Father, that this would be interaction with you, the one and true living, holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we pray now for strength. We pray for supernatural ability to be able to worship you through your word as you have so graciously given it. We know that we have no right to come in and of ourselves, but we come in Jesus' name and therefore his sake. And we ask this all for his glory. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our study in the book of Galatians. And what we've been exploring over the last two Sundays is Paul's supporting evidence to the claim that the gospel he preached was not from men, but from God. That's the argument that Paul's been presenting to the Galatian churches in his letter to them. And the reason Paul is presenting them with this argument is because Paul's gospel and apostleship have been under attack from false teachers. And what these false teachers have been claiming is that Paul isn't a true apostle and that he's preaching a messed up version of the gospel that he received from the Jerusalem apostles and that the Jerusalem apostles agree not with Paul but instead with the false teachers. Now Paul knows that these claims are false but even more importantly he knows that these lies undermine the gospel. And so that's why Paul is writing to the Galatians. He wants them to know that he received both his apostleship and his gospel, not from men, but from God. That's 
Paul's basic aim here. And so just by way of review, I want us to briefly rehearse Paul's argument so far. Very, very briefly. And so starting back in chapter 1, verses 11 through 17, what Paul showed us is that the only explanation for his his conversion and calling is that Jesus is the one who saved him. There's simply no other logical explanation. Because how else do you explain how a guy goes from being a murderer of Christians to becoming a Christian himself? Well, the only answer that makes any sort of sense is that Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and consequently saved him. And then what Paul showed us in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 1 is that he couldn't have possibly received his gospel from Peter because he didn't even see Peter until three years after his conversion. Next, Paul showed us in verses 21 through 24 that he also didn't receive his gospel from the churches in Judea because they didn't even know who Paul was. I mean, they'd heard of him, but they'd, they'd never actually interacted with him. And so how could, they have, how could he have possibly received his gospel from someone that he'd never even met before? And then last week, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul showed us that the Jerusalem apostles didn't add anything to his gospel. Instead, they simply agreed with Paul and didn't require Titus to be circumcised, thus proving that the Jerusalem apostles stood not with the Judaizers, not with the false teachers, but with Paul. Now, I share all that with you for two reasons. First of all, just to refresh our memories, because it's always helpful to do that, isn't it? And second of all, to show us that in our passage here this morning, Paul is continuing to build on the argument that he started all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 11. In other words, Paul is continuing to build his case here. And the way he does that is by telling the Galatians about how he had to rebuke Peter in Antioch. Now, you may be wondering to yourself, well, how in the world does showing the Galatians that, Peter, uh, that Paul rebuked Peter in Antioch help to advance Paul's argument here? Well, in order to answer that, we have to understand that the Galatians greatly revered Peter. And the reason for that was because the Judaizers greatly revered Peter. And so as a result, they passed that reverence on to the Galatians. But you see what the Galatians, uh, Judaizers were also trying to pass on to the Galatians was the false impression that Peter and Paul disagreed with one another about the gospel. And since Peter was greater than Paul, so went the faulty Judaizers' logic. Peter was right and Paul was wrong. That's the narrative that the Judaizers were trying to get the Galatians to believe. Now, obviously, that narrative is a lie. But the bigger problem was that that narrative was undermining the gospel. And so that's why Paul wants to rebuke it. And the way Paul does that is by showing the Galatians two things primarily. First of all, Paul shows them that he and Peter are actually in agreement about the gospel. And we saw that last week in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But then the second thing that Paul shows the Galatians is that when he and Peter did, in fact, disagree on something, Peter actually submitted to Paul. It wasn't the other way around. 
And the reason for that is because Paul had the authority of an apostle. Because he was, in fact, an apostle. So then you see what Paul is doing here? He's giving the Galatians proof that despite what the false teachers are saying, Paul is not under Peter. Instead, since Peter submitted to Paul, what that proves is that Peter and Paul are actually equals as apostles, and therefore equals as those who had received direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ, which ultimately proved that Paul's gospel was true because it was not from men, but it was from God. But then what was the situation that brought about Paul's rebuke of Peter here. Well, we'll go into more detail a little bit later, but essentially what happened was Peter was eating and fellowshipping with Gentile believers every day while he was in Antioch. But then he stopped when certain Jews showed up because he was afraid of what they would think of him. And the reason for his fear was due to the Jewish cleanliness laws, which said that if you ate with a Gentile, then you were unclean. And so Peter didn't want them to think that he was unclean because of his contact with the Gentiles. Now again, I'll go into more detail about this a little bit later, but for now what we need to see is that Paul says Peter's actions here were not only hypocritical, but also sinful and not in step with the gospel. And so as a result, Paul had no other recourse but to publicly rebuke Peter. Which begs the question though, how in the world could Peter, as an apostle, as one used by God to write sacred scripture, how could he possibly act this way? How? Well, the short answer is that Peter could act this way because he was a fallen, sinful human being. I mean, certainly he was a Christian who was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but at the same time, let's be clear about this, he was not the infallible Pope that the Roman Catholic Church claims him to be. And you know what? That's actually really good news for us in all sorts of ways. But specifically, the way it's good news for us this morning is that it means that we can learn from Peter's downfall here. Because even though he was an apostle, And none of us in this room are. He was still a fallen yet regenerate follower of Christ, even as we are. And so what I hope we can do then this morning is that we can learn and be warned from Peter's sin here. And I think the best way for us to do that is by looking at the three movements in Peter's story of separation from the Gentiles. Three movements in the story of Peter's separation from the Gentiles. We'll look at the hypocrisy of Peter's separation, the influence of Peter's separation, and the correction of Peter's separation. So first, let's look at the hypocrisy of Peter's separation. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me again. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, as we jump into these verses here, the first thing we need to acknowledge is that they raise all sorts of questions that we're simply not going to be able to answer. 
For example, the first question we would probably ask is, when did Cephas or Peter go to Antioch? And the answer to that is, we really don't know. An educated guess is that this probably happened sometime after Paul went to Jerusalem the second time, like we saw last week, and yet before the Jerusalem a council that took place in Acts chapter 15. But again, at the end of the day, we don't really know, so we ultimately can't say. And the second question we would probably ask is, why did Peter go to Antioch? And again, the answer is that we don't really know. Why? Because the text doesn't tell us. But you see, even though we can't answer these questions, Paul's retelling of the events here is abundantly clear. And so here's what happened. Whenever and for whatever reason, Peter went for a visit to Antioch. And that's why Paul says in verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, and it's significant that Peter went to Antioch because Antioch was to the Gentile Christians what Jerusalem was to the Jewish Christians because they both served as a sort of missionary hub for God's work amongst these two groups of people. And you see, while Peter was visiting there, a situation arose in which Paul needed to rebuke him. And the reason Paul needed to do that was because of what he says in verse 11. He says, because he, that is Peter, stood condemned. Now, right off the bat, you can easily sense the tension here, can't you? I mean, it's, it's almost palpable. And you see, Paul's intentionally doing that because he wants the Galatians to feel the tension. And here's what the tension is about. Verse 12 tells us, For before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So then here's the situation. Apparently, Peter had been in Antioch now for quite some time. And during that time, he was fellowshipping with the Gentile Christians by eating with them and sharing a table with them. And you see, to the Jews, Peter's actions here were very disconcerting. Because in the Old Testament, it was a huge deal for a Jew to eat and have fellowship with a Gentile. As a matter of fact, under the Jewish cleanliness laws, eating with a Gentile would make you unclean. And the reason for that is because Gentiles weren't circumcised. And if you weren't circumcised, then guess what that meant? You were unclean. But then on top of that, the Gentiles were also doubly unclean because they ate unclean foods. Foods like crab or lobster or shrimp or pork, and so on and so forth. And so the last thing a Jew wanted to do was to come into contact with a Gentile because contact with a Gentile would make you unclean. And you see, if you were to become unclean as a Jew, it affected your entire life for a period of time. And what that looked like was an avoidance of that which was holy and an attempt to seek purification in other words, being unclean wasn't simply a hassle if you were a Jew, although it was certainly that. Even more importantly, it was a direct violation of God's command. Because these cleanliness laws weren't the ideas of the Jewish people, they were God's idea. He's the one who gave them to his people. And you see, the reason why God gave these cleanliness laws was to show Israel that God was clean 
and that they were unclean. He was pure, and they were impure. In other words, these laws were meant to remind Israel about who God was and who they were. They were meant to remind them of God's holiness and their unholiness, of God's perfection and their imperfection, of God's sufficiency and their great need. And these cleanliness laws had other purposes as well. They were also meant to show Israel that out of the fallen, sinful, impure lump of mankind, God had chosen them to show the nations what it meant to be cleansed by God and thus reckoned as clean before God. Because you see, Israel was chosen by God to testify to the nations of how God could cleanse and redeem mankind. And the cleanliness laws were meant to help in that testimony by making a distinction between clean Israel and the unclean nations. Now, having heard all that, you may be wondering to yourself, well, then what in the world did Peter do wrong here? I mean, wasn't he just obeying God's command to keep himself separate from the unclean Gentiles? Well, I can see why you might be thinking that. But you see, the coming of Christ, the coming of Jesus, changed everything in regards to the cleanliness laws. And Peter knew that better than anybody else. Because in the first place, Peter actually watched Jesus change the cleanliness laws in his earthly ministry. And to show you what I mean by that, turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, and beginning in verse 14. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. And he, that is Jesus, called the people to him again. And said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Now listen to this. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So you see what Jesus is saying is that it's not the externals that defile us. And it's not the things outside of us that make us unclean. Instead, it's our own sinful hearts that defile us. And make us unclean. And so, since that's true, in verse 19, Jesus declared all foods clean. In other words, now that Jesus has come, the distinction between clean and unclean foods is done away with. It's obsolete. And the reason for that is because ultimately the cleanliness laws were meant to be signs that pointed us to the reality that is Jesus. 
And so now that Jesus is here, we don't need the signs anymore. They're completely out of place. And if you need further proof of that, just listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to this. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now listen to this. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, all of the ceremonial laws were merely a shadow, but Christ is the reality. Christ is the substance. And so now that the substance is here, now that Christ has come, the shadows are to be dispelled because you don't need them anymore. So you see, the first reason Peter knew that the cleanliness laws had changed was because of what he saw in the earthly ministry of Christ. And the second reason Peter knew that Jesus' coming had changed the cleanliness laws was because of what God showed him in Acts chapter 10. If you recall, in Acts chapter 10, Peter was on his way to Joppa to meet with Cornelius. And while they were on their way, they stopped so that Peter could pray and get something to eat. And while he was doing that, Peter had a vision of a sheet being dropped down to the earth. It was filled with, with all sorts of unclean animals. And the Lord told Peter to rise, kill, and eat. And do you remember how Paul, excuse me, Peter responded? He said in verses 14 and 15, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, that is the voice of the Lord, and said, What God has made clean, do not call common. Now, obviously, the Lord is clearly telling Peter here that all foods are now clean, but he's also telling him something else because there's an even deeper significance to this vision here. And if we jump down to verse 28, we actually see what that deeper significance is. Peter is speaking here to the Gentile Cornelius and his friends, and here's what he says. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So you see, what God had clearly shown Peter is that now that Jesus had come, the cleanliness laws were to be gone and done away with. And not just in regards to food, but also in regards to people. In other words, just as food was no longer to be regarded as clean or unclean, so too people were now no longer to be regarded as clean or unclean. And that's hugely significant because, again, under the old covenant, the cleanliness laws were intended by God to make a distinction between Israel and the nations. But now that Jesus had come, there was to be no more distinction. And you know, that's the exact same idea that Paul picks up in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. And I actually want you to see this one, so turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Therefore, remember... 
that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision, excuse me, the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In other words, what Paul is making crystal clear here is that since Jesus has come, the division and hostility between Jew and Gentile, between clean and unclean, has been eradicated. And how has that been accomplished? Paul says that Jesus accomplished that by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. In other words, all of the cleanliness laws that separated the Jews from the Gentiles have now been abolished with the coming of Christ. And so you see what all that shows us then, what all this shows us cumulatively, is that Peter was without excuse in his actions towards the Gentiles. Because Peter knew better. He knew better than anyone else how Jesus' coming had abolished the cleanliness laws. And so that's why he knew when he first showed up in Antioch that he was free to eat with the Gentile Christians there. He knew that he could eat with them and not become unclean because that old system had been abolished now that Jesus had come. Because in Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles could now be clean. Clean before God and clean before each other. And you see, the reason for that was because in his death, his atoning death on the cross, Jesus took their defilement upon himself. And in place of their defilement, he had now covered them with Christ's clean robes of righteousness that he had earned and merited in his perfect life. And so therefore, in Jesus, there was now no distinction to be made between Jew and Gentile, because that's not what defined them anymore. Being in Jesus is what now defined them. But you see, Peter already knew that. And that's Paul's whole point here. And so that's why Paul rebuked him. Paul rebuked him because even though Peter knew better, he still separated himself from the Gentiles. And why did Peter do that? Not because he didn't know the truth of the gospel. And not even because he didn't believe the truth of the gospel. No, he, instead, he separated himself from the Gentiles simply out of fear of the circumcision party. In other words, Peter sinned in this way because he feared man more than he feared God. Because he was more concerned with what they thought than what God thought. And so as a result, Peter lived his life in a manner that was inconsistent with the gospel 
that he believed. And so guess what? He was a hypocrite. Because he was believing one thing, but then doing another. And in so doing, he was denying by his own actions the very gospel that he believed. And you know, brothers and sisters, this should serve as a grave warning to each and every one of us here this morning. Because what happened to Peter can just as easily happen to you and to me. Which is why Paul tells us, In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, don't think for a moment that you can't fall prey to the sin of hypocrisy and the fear of man, because that's a temptation that's common to each and every one of us in this room, just like every other temptation, by the way. But you see, the sad reality is that we often give in to these temptations, don't we? Which is why James can say in chapter 3 and verse 2 of his epistle, for we all stumble in many ways. And we do, don't we? And so you see, it's for those very reasons that we must be diligent, diligently vigilant over our own hearts. Indeed, we must, as Paul told Timothy, watch our lives and doctrine closely. Because in the flesh, our hearts desperately crave to betray us. And in this life, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for who he can devour. And so if you don't think that that can happen to you, that you can't fall into the same hypocrisy, or the same fear of man, or the same sinful elitism and racism as Peter here, then you're wrong. It's as simple as that. You're dead wrong. And so I implore you to heed the warnings of Scripture about just how sinful you and I are. And I admonish you with the words of Jesus that you watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Because as the Puritan John Owen once famously wrote, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So what we've seen then is that the cause of Peter's separation from the Gentiles was his fear of man, specifically his his fear of the circumcision party. And you see, it was because of that fear that Peter behaved hypocritically in a way that wasn't in keeping with what he knew and believed to be true. But now that we've looked at the hypocrisy of Peter's separation, secondly, let's look at the influence of Peter's separation. Look at verse 13 with me. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now in this one verse, what Paul is showing us is the toxic effect of Peter's hypocrisy on those around him. And the first group to be affected are the other Jewish Christians who were in Antioch. Because what Paul tells us is that they acted hypocritically as well. In other words, even though they knew that Peter was wrong, they still followed him. They followed him right into his hypocrisy. And as you can imagine, Paul was deeply saddened by this. 
And because you see in Paul's mind, it gets even worse than that because he reports that even Barnabas was led astray. Even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, even Barnabas, the spearhead of missions to the Gentiles, even Barnabas was led astray, Paul says in astonishment. And why were they led astray? Well, Paul tells us that they were led astray for the same reason that Peter was. Not out of conviction, but out of fear. In other words, Peter and the Jewish Christians hadn't changed their minds theologically on whether or not the Gentiles needed to obey the cleanliness laws. They still believed that they didn't. Instead, Paul says that they acted contrary to their beliefs because of fear. In other words, Peter led them in fear, and they followed him in fear. And you know, seeing this in Peter's life is very instructive for us, because it reminds us of the reality that our sin doesn't just affect us, It also affects our brothers and sisters in Christ who are around us. And you see, we often struggle with that reality, don't we? Because here in the West, we are so individualistic, both as a culture and as a church. And so the temptation is strong for us to think that our sin isn't really that big of a deal because it it, it only really affects us. But what this passage makes abundantly clear is that our sin is not self-contained. It's not self-contained like you and I are often tempted to believe. It affects the entire church. And given what Scripture says about our corporate identity, that should make perfect sense to us. Because how does Paul describe us as the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? He says we're one body made up of many parts. And so as a result, what happens to that one part of the body? happens to the rest of the body as well. Because you see, even though we are many in Christ, we are also one in Christ. And so, as a result, while we're each individually responsible for our own sin, it also affects one another, not just ourselves. And a great example of that is Peter's own sin here. Because what we see is that Peter's sin created a temptation for Barnabas and the Jewish Christians in Antioch. And so by his sin, he had tempted them to sin. And you see, the same is still true today. Because our sin also creates temptations for those around us. And so collectively, it weakens us. For example, if I'm gossiping in my conversation with another Christian, with one of you, then I'm tempting you to listen to my gossip and thus to participate in gossip with me, which is sin. And so when I participate in gossip, I'm not only sinning myself, but I'm also tempting you to sin as well. But you know, the truth of the matter is that we don't take that nearly as seriously as we should, do we? Because do you know what Jesus says about tempting someone else to sin? He says in Luke 17, verses 1 through 3, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. It's hard to imagine imagery more frightening than that. I mean, just think about 
having a rock tied around your neck that was so big and heavy that you can't even lift it. Because that's what a millstone was. And then with that millstone around your neck, you get dropped into the ocean. That's terrifying. And yet what Jesus is saying here is that that would be better for you than that you should tempt another believer to sin. And so what that means then is that we should be asking ourselves constantly, constantly, before we speak and act, will this prove to be a temptation to my brother or my sister in Christ? We constantly need to be asking ourselves that. And yet, even more importantly, we should be on our faces praying for the Lord to have mercy on us in our relationships with one another, pleading with Him that we wouldn't be a source of temptation for others. But I got one more point of application here from this verse, and here it is. As Christians, as Christians, we cannot, we cannot pursue peace at all costs. And I think that's a very helpful reminder for us because my guess is that for most of us here today, myself included, that's probably our natural bent. I mean, I'm sure there's a few exceptions, those of us who are far too eager to enter into confrontation, and that's not a good thing either, by the way. But I think the temptation for the majority of us is to pursue peace no matter what it costs. And what this passage is showing us is that it's unloving to approach controversy that way. I mean, just think about it. If Paul hadn't opposed Peter, figured that was going to happen, and Barnabas, and the other Jewish Christians in Antioch, then who would have stood for the gospel? Because that's what Paul says was at stake here. In verse 14, he says that they were not acting in step with the truth of the gospel. And so, if Paul hadn't stood for the truth, then guess what would have happened? The gospel would have been lost. Because Peter didn't take a stand for the truth. And the Jewish Christians didn't take a stand for the truth. And not even Barnabas stood for the truth. Only Paul stood for the truth. And I bet even he had to fight off the temptation to cave. But thanks be to God, he didn't, because then the gospel would have been lost, and the Judaizers would have won. So you see, here's the point. It is unloving of us to let false teachers and false doctrine win the day. Because even though we're to pursue peace with all men, so far as it depends on us, that doesn't mean sacrificing the truth to do so. Because hear me, That's not true peace. It's a facade. True peace is an environment where the the truth is spoken in love. And love is spoken in truth. Because you can't have one without the other. And yet, you see, it's far too easy for us. Even as it was far too easy for Peter and Barnabas and all the rest to compromise the gospel and believe that peace is worth it. And so I pray with all my heart that God would be pleased to spare us from such foolish and shallow thinking. Because it's the temptation and natural bent of most of our hearts. So we need to be asking Him 
to make sure that that doesn't happen. So we've looked at the hypocrisy of Peter's separation. We've looked at the influence of Peter's separation. And lastly, let's look at the correction of Peter's separation. Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves, that is, Peter and Paul, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now again, what we see here is that Paul loved Peter and the truth enough to oppose his sin and hypocrisy. But we need to keep in mind that this wasn't something that Paul relished to do. It wasn't something that that he took joy in as if this somehow proved that he was superior to Peter. As a matter of fact, I believe quite the opposite is true. Because I'm confident that Paul entered into this with a very heavy heart, as we all should, by the way, when we have to confront someone else in sin. And if you want a great example of this, just think about when you have to discipline your kids. Because when you do, your heart is heavy, isn't it? Now, perhaps if you're doing it in the wrong spirit, your heart is really, really angry. But your heart should be heavy. Why? Because you don't enjoy disciplining your kids. And if you do, then something is seriously wrong with you. And you should come talk to me afterwards. But you see, if you discipline your kids because you love them, even though you despise having to inflict pain or withhold good things from them, then you're a good parent because you're a good reflection of your loving Heavenly Father because you love your kids enough to confront them in their sin. And you see, that's really the question here, brothers and sisters. Do we love each other enough to confront each other's sin? And does that love manifest itself by actually being saddened by the sin and by the fact that we have to confront each other? And does it show up by having compassion on each other when we have to confront one another? Because you see, that's the kind of attitude that God wants us to have in the midst of confrontation in the church. But we also need to note here that Paul had sufficient evidence to confront Peter and Barnabas and the rest. And that's an important thing to point out. Because he didn't just confront them based on on mere hearsay, on second-hand information. No, he had confirmation of the sin before he confronted them. That's why Paul says in verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now again, this is extremely important. Because some of us are so quick to confront, I think we're the minority, but some of us are so quick to confront that we do so before we've even verified that the person has sinned. And so for some of us, we need to acknowledge that our foolish approach to confrontation is often ready, fire, aim. Oh no. 
And you see, for those of us who have that proclivity, which I confess is me sometimes as well, let me give you three practical ways to slow yourself down on confronting someone. This is very appropriate for a sermon like this. So three ways for you to slow yourself down when you're confronting someone. First of all, real simple, pray. Pray. And here's why I say that. If you're thinking about potentially confronting someone in their sin, then you desperately need to ask God for wisdom. And the reason for that is because when you're thinking about confronting someone, there are all sorts of questions that you need to answer first. Just to give you a few examples, we're talking about questions like, is what I'm seeing here an actual sin? Because guess what? It might not be. So you'd better be sure and you'd better be searching the scriptures to see if it is or not because that's your standard. Scripture is your standard. Another question to ask is, is now the right time to even confront the sin? Now this can very easily be abused so that you never confront sin, but appropriately used, um, you need to think this through because maybe it truly is a sin, but there are multiple sins in this person's life right now. And this, is, this one really isn't the highest priority. Maybe other sins are a higher priority. And so let's work on those ones. In other words, for the time being, you may just need to be patient with them and trust that the Holy Spirit is at work in them. But here's the point. You're going to have to make a ton of wisdom calls as you prepare yourself to rebuke someone. And so you'd better be asking God for wisdom. And you know, while you're at it, also be praying for the other person. Because at the end of the day, you know this, I know this, you can't change their heart. Only God can change their heart. So guess what you should do? You should ask God to change their heart. Second of all, follow the advice of Jesus and look first at the plank in your own eye. And the reason I say that is because nothing is more helpful in putting things into perspective, than realizing your own sin before a holy God. Because as you do so, you yourself will almost always be moved to repentance and confession and then joy in forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that you won't confront them simply because you've got your own sin to confess, but it does mean that your heart will be prepared to come alongside of them as a fellow sinner rather than as a doctor who's here to heal them. Because just to be clear, Jesus is the doctor, and both of you are the sick patients. Thirdly, ask yourself, am I assigning the worst possible motive to this person? And that's an important question to ask yourself, because the interpretive lens through which you are viewing the other person may be the very reason why you think you need to confront them in the first place. In other words, you may be wrongly assigning motives to their actions that aren't even really there. How appropriate is that to apply during the holiday season? And you see, the only way you can know their motives is how? Is if they tell them to you. In other words, we are to confront one another over actual sins and not over motives that we're assuming of the other person. So then here's the bottom line. When you're thinking of confronting another believer in their sin, you'd better be taking time to do so in wisdom and repentance and prayer before the face of God. 
And you see, I don't doubt for a minute that Paul did the exact same thing. Not that he followed these specific steps here, but that he prepared his heart before God. And you see, because of that, he was able to firmly, humbly, and sorrowfully rebuke Peter. Because he didn't just rush to conclusions or assume motives. Instead, he simply rebuked them for the sin that was clearly there. And our hearts should be thankful to God that he did. But you know, one of the aspects of Paul's rebuke here that a lot of people struggle with is how he rebuked Peter in front of everybody. Because verse 14 tells us that Paul rebuked Peter before them all. And so then here's the question, was it right of Paul to do that? And by extension, is it ever right for us to rebuke someone publicly for sin? And a classic example of this is when a a pastor publicly teaches false doctrine. Because if someone rebukes that pastor publicly, almost always someone is going to complain. And here's what they'll say, well, why didn't you just go to them privately? Well, why did you have to rebuke them in front of everyone publicly? Well, you see, the reason it's perfectly acceptable to rebuke them publicly is the same reason that Paul rebukes Peter publicly. If the sin is public, then the rebuke can be public. That's the way it works. And this is especially the case here because Peter's sin had huge public consequences in that others were following him in his sin. In other words, you can't cite Matthew 18 here and say that Paul was wrong. Because Matthew 18 applies to a very different context than the one that Paul was facing here. But what does Paul actually say to Peter? Well, in verse 14, the first thing we see is that he calls Peter on his hypocrisy. He essentially says, listen, Peter, before these Jews came, you were living without any regard for the Jewish cleanliness laws, even though you're ethnically a Jew. In fact, you are not only eating with the Gentiles, you are actually eating the very food that they eat, the unclean foods. And you see, the reason you were living that way, Peter, is because you knew that Jesus had abolished the cleanliness laws and pronounced all things clean. So then, behold your hypocrisy, Peter, because now that these Jews are here, you're forcing the Gentiles to observe those abolished laws in order to be fit to share a table with you. That's essentially what Paul told Peter in his rebuke. Now from there, Paul goes on to show us the very center of his letter to the Galatians. Because in verse 15, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. In other words, Paul readily acknowledges that both he and Peter are ethnic Jews and not Gentile sinners, as the religious elite referred to them. But then Paul goes on to say, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So you see, what Paul is saying then is, listen, Peter, you and I both know that even under the old covenant, Jews were not saved by their law-keeping. Because even before Jesus came, we Jews could only be saved by having faith in the coming Messiah, in Jesus the Christ Himself. 
And so justification has never been by works of the law, even under the old covenant. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 16, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, Peter, even you and I have only been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It wasn't because of any works that we had done. It's only because of the work of Christ. It's only because of His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection and ascension on our behalf. That's how we're saved, Peter. And I know that you know that. And then just to drive home his point, Paul ends here by saying, because by works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. So you see, Paul makes it abundantly clear that you cannot make yourself righteous before a holy God by working for it. Because there's nothing you can do to put yourself in a right standing with God. I don't care how religious you are or how ethical you are or how hardworking you are or how kind you are or how sacrificial you are or how doctrinally sound you are. None of that can justify you because you are incapable of justifying yourself. It's impossible. So then what's our only hope? Well, our only hope is to despair of our own works and to instead cast ourselves entirely upon the person and work of Jesus Christ because that's what it means to look to Jesus in faith. It means that you're not looking to yourself in order to stand before God. You're looking to Christ in order to stand before God. And you see, Paul's whole point here is that this is not only how we need to view ourselves, it's also how we need to view one another. Because we need to not only see ourselves in Christ with no works added, we also need to see one another in Christ with no works added for our justification. Because you see, that's the very basis of our fellowship with God and with one another. Since we're united to Christ... We are also united in Christ. And therefore, even though we are many and we are different, oh, are we different, we are still one in Christ. And so that's why Paul says that if you let anything, anything get in the way of that, then you're not walking in consistency with the gospel and that sin. And so I hope that This morning, we can learn from Peter's example here, brothers and sisters. And I pray that God would grant to us the humility to understand that just like Peter, we can all fall prey to hypocrisy if we don't watch ourselves. Because we are all prone to giving way to the fear of man and thus sinning against God. So let us constantly, constantly, Be battling against our sin. Asking God to help us to walk in accord with the truths of the gospel. And may God spare us from being a temptation to sin for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And furthermore, when we are a temptation to them, 
May God grant us to be quick to repent and seek to restore not only ourselves unto God, but also any that we have led astray. And may God be gracious to us by surrounding us with believers who love us enough to confront us in our sin. And may He grant us also humility so that we receive such rebukes as the wounds of a friend and learn to love them more than the kisses of an enemy. And most importantly of all, may we abide in communion with God and with one another, knowing that we are not saved by works of the law, but rather by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly thankful for this account that you have given us in your holy and inspired word that Paul loved you and the truth enough and you empowered him to rebuke Peter for living in a way that was inconsistent with the gospel. And Father, we pray that we would learn from both Peter and Paul's example here. We pray that we would understand and know ourselves how weak we are because your word is clear about that. And so we pray that we would diligently be making use of the means of grace, reading your word and praying and fellowshipping with others that we might put to death our sin. And Father, we also pray that we would be mindful of the effect that our sin has on one another. We pray that, that we would constantly be asking ourselves, am I being a stumbling block for my brother or my sister? And if we are, may we repent to them and to you and be restored to one another. And Father, we also pray that we would love one another enough to rebuke each other when we see sin in our lives. Father, we're so thankful for how we get to see this, see this happen in your word. And we're thankful that what that translates to us is that we now get to receive, as Gentiles, the good news that we are not saved by works, but instead we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, all to the praise of your glorious grace. We are now clean in Him. And Father, we are clean because you have cleansed us by His blood. So we ask now that we would respond to you with great thanks and gratitude, and that you would be exalted in our midst this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.